This is Real Practical Teaching, real educators talking about real teaching. I'm Scott Muller. My content specialty is in history, and before I took over the AP Capstone program at my current school, I taught history classes for six years, and I loved every minute of it. I have taught everything from 7th grade through 12th grade, everything from world history to U.S. history. I've taught electives like political science, international relations, anthropology, sociology, even economics. When I was younger, I loved watching the History Channel, and this was before the History Channel just showed TV shows about loggers and aliens. I loved learning about the American Civil War, the Salem Witch Trials, and World War II. And today, I'm an avid listener of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. But as much as I loved history growing up, and I still love history, there's one thing about history and academics that I absolutely detest, and that is the textbook. And that's because it homogenized me into a factory-style learning environment. It assumed that my reading level was the same as all of my classmates. It assumed that my initial understanding of history was the same as all my classmates. It assumed that the way I learned was the same as my classmates. It assumed that my previous experiences and my background was the same as my classmates. And because of this, history textbooks focus on a Wikipedia style of historical content, explaining history as if it was a scientific formula instead of a story about people and their individual actions and decisions. And so what would often happen in my history classes is I was told I needed to read a section of this history textbook and I needed to answer some basic questions about the content in this textbook. In class, we took notes over the textbook and I was never given the ability to demonstrate my knowledge in a unique way. Every now and again, we would have a project, but there was only one way to complete the project. I had to do a poster board or I had to make a video or I had to participate in a debate. And because of this restriction, I got bored and my grades suffered. Why should I care about this class if we're talking about a historical time period that I already know a lot about and I'm not able to demonstrate my mastery in a unique way? Unfortunately, this experience in high school led me to first teach my history classes like this. And to be honest, the reactions I had in my history classrooms toward the content mirrored my students' reaction to my classes. I didn't take into account my students' different learning experiences, their pre-existing knowledge, their strengths and their weaknesses in order to create a unit where every student can be successful, where every student can demonstrate a year of growth. And that meant I had to differentiate. Differentiation is a big buzzword in education. But to be honest, for the first six years of my teaching career, I had no idea what it really was. My basic understanding of it was that I was supposed to teach different ways for different students, but I had no idea how. It wasn't until I went to grad school and I read Carol Ann Toplinson's books on differentiation that I truly understood what differentiation looks like. So this podcast is going to focus on what the look-fors of differentiation are and how I try to incorporate them in my classroom. Now, I am not at all saying I am perfect at this. I am still working on differentiation, but it will at least give you a foundation on how we can approach this and grow together. The first look for of differentiation is the classroom environment. Every student needs to feel like they are a valuable part of the learning environment. This creates trust in the classroom that allows for credibility of the teacher. 
To that end, students need to be affirmed, they need to feel like they can contribute to the classroom environment, they need to feel like they have a purpose for being there, they need to feel like they are empowered in what goes on in the classroom, and they also need to feel challenged. Carol Ann Tomlinson emphasizes this in her 2002 article, Invitations to Learn, where she notes, quote, the teacher's invitation, rooted in an unerring belief in the worth and dignity of each learner, and multiply to the classroom society that teacher and students will develop, becomes the catalyst for most of the decisions that will follow throughout the year, unquote. This is achieved through the affirmation that students are welcomed in the class, which will promote a positive view of learning in the classroom. Once students feel that they are welcomed and seen as a valuable part of the classroom, they need to feel empowered to be decision makers in the learning environment. There are a couple of ways I try to set the tone for this in my classroom, and a lot of this comes from the first day. I tell my students on the first day of class, and I re-emphasize to them throughout the year that I don't care what their friends may think of them, or other teachers may think of them, or anyone else. They are valuable to me because they are in my class, and they are one of my students. I empower them by contributing to the atmosphere of the classroom. Students can come in and bring in furniture to decorate the room. They can have a say over the expectations of the classroom and can alter those expectations during the beginning of the year. And in all of my interactions with them, I emphasize the belief that they can accomplish their goals. I also try to reveal a little bit of my personality within the classroom. I don't want my students to see me as a robot. So I talk a little bit about some of my interests. I talk a little bit about my background. And once in a while, if it's pertinent, I might introduce a story from my life to connect with what we might be learning. Now, this doesn't mean I tell them everything about my life and I reveal everything about myself to them. I need to create a professional distance so that we have a professional relationship. But that requires me to reveal a little bit about myself so that students can develop trust with me. Once a student-centered learning environment is implemented, the second look for takes place. High quality curriculum. Without a curriculum that allows for differentiation and gives students the skills and resources to become independent thinkers, the learning environment's going to stagnate. It, it's impossible to cover the breadth of content in a single subject. Quantity over quality has been emphasized in classrooms, honestly, with little success. The need to develop curriculum revolving around discovery, inquiry, problem solving, and in-depth investigation must occur for differentiation to flourish. Carol Ann Tomlinson, again, highlights how to transition to a high-quality curriculum in a chapter of her 2003 book, Fulfilling the Promise of the Differentiated Classroom, where she says, educators should first create units that focus on what students should know in terms of simple terms and concepts, understand, and be able to do. And this should be explicitly stated to students. One way I do this is something called a KUD. On my slides every day, I have what students need to know in terms of concepts or simple understanding, understand, which are the standards that are being assessed in this unit, and be able to do, which is the skills that they are going to demonstrate in this unit. And I have them for the entire unit up on the slide. Then what I do for each day is I highlight what concepts, standards, and skills are being practiced in that day. I also make sure I do pre-assessment at the beginning of each unit in order to understand where students are coming into my class. 
Ultimately, curriculum that meets students at their interest level and makes connections to their lives gives them choice and allows them to make a contribution to the academic field. This is where authentic assessment takes place. I want to put my students in an environment where they, were, they are reflecting authentic assessment in a discipline. Now, in my U.S. government class, that means that if students are taking this class, they need to be able to analyze political argument, and my curriculum needs to reflect that. So I choose thematic topics around U.S. government like who controls elections, who does the legislative branch work for, does the executive branch have too much power, which allows students choice on how they want to answer that question and choice of product in how they can demonstrate mastery of the skills in our unit of instruction. But not only should my curriculum be engaging, but should also be de demanding enough for each student to work in their zone of proximal development so that every student is challenged to get that year of learning. This will teach each student what is worthy and essential in the subject and ensures that every student develops the habits of mind and attitudes necessary for success in school and in life. It also means that educators need to foster grit, determination, reflection, and metacognition in students in order for them to interact with their academic field. To help students meet these two goals, we need to scaffold our instruction so all students are able to meet their highest potential. In my U.S. government class, when we begin a unit of instruction, I ask them to make a personal learning goal, A, B, C, or D because that's going to determine the feedback I give them as they grow and develop mastery over particular skills. I, for a student who is just trying to pass the class with a C, I'm not going to give the same feedback to a student who's trying to get an A. Now, if that student is demonstrating proficiency in a C level of performance, I can then extend them and scaffold them out to a B, but I need to work within each student's zone of proximal development. The third look for of differentiation is formative assessment. Once high quality curriculum is established in a positive student-centered classroom, we need to use formative assessment to inform our instructional decisions in order for all students to maximize their learning in a unit of study. The principles of assessment as a tool for differentiated learning are modeling of assessment for exemplars, pre-assessment, choice, specific feedback for growth, self-assessment, and reassessment of skills for students. The point of assessment is to make sure that the observed score of a task mirrors the mastery level of a student. To that end, students need to know how they are being assessed, what various performance levels look like, and what evaluators are thinking as they grade a task. This means that in my U.S. government class, once students determine what proficiency level they want to demonstrate in A, B, C, or D, I need to, need to have various exemplars in that unit to let them know what that proficiency looks like. I also use assessment modeling so that students know what my thought process is as I am assessing an exemplar. I also need to provide student choice in formative assessments so that they can demonstrate their understanding and skills in a unit of study that matches with their strengths. Ultimately, without student choice, I may be inaccurate in giving them feedback on their formative assessments. This also means that I need to provide multiple supplementary resources for students depending on their level of performance coming into the unit of study. Now, one thing I do with U.S. government that works really well are flip videos because it's a resource that any student can access and get a better conceptual understanding of the content that we're covering. They could watch it at their own leisure and as many times as they need. 
This also means that students should have multiple opportunities to resubmit formative assessments so that I can continue to give, to give them feedback in where they stand toward the skills that will lead them to success on the summative assessment. Too many times, and I made this mistake a lot, students would give me a formative assessment, I would provide feedback, and I'd put it in the gradebook. But I wouldn't give them a chance to actually use that feedback to improve on that formative assessment so that they can see their learning and growth over time. If you would like to know more about how formative assessment can be used for success on summative assessments, check out my Using Assessment to Guide Instruction podcast. The fourth look for differentiation are the instructional arrangements that I'm going to use in my classroom. Now, there are three different types of instructional arrangements I can use. Whole group settings, small group settings, and individualized instruction. Typically in my classroom, I use whole group instruction when we're talking about the structure of a unit. In my U.S. government class, when we're starting a unit, I talk about what the thematic question is, our timetable, how it's going to be assessed. I'll do some assessment modeling. Students may practice assessing some exemplars. And what they'll do is create a goal-setting document where they put down every calendar date for the unit as well as objectives that they're going to do for each day. This allows me to provide individualized instruction with them throughout the course. We also use some small group settings in my classroom in U.S. government. For instance, if they need to provide feedback for each other's learning products, small group assessment is fantastic. If you're introducing a new skill and you want to make sure students have access to other students as a resource, small group instruction is fantastic. When I first do assessment modeling and I ask students to assess exemplars, I typically ask them to do it in a small group first. This allows students to use each other as a resource for learning and also troubleshoots issues individual students may be having. Now throughout that unit, I will use individualized instruction for each student because in this U.S. government class, they're all addressing a thematic question differently and they're using different evidence to craft their argument. So I meet with students every day to see the artifacts that they're creating to demonstrate creating a line of reasoning, creating contextualization, analyzing evidence, and synthesizing different pieces of evidence together. The last look for differentiation is respectful tasks, which means that the summative assessment in a unit of instruction should allow for different readiness levels, interest levels, and learning profiles of students. Students come into a classroom with different perspectives and knowledge on a particular topic, on different ways that they learn, and different strengths in order to demonstrate their mastery of standards. And so our summative assessments should account for that and allow students choice in how they want to present their understanding. Carol N. Tomlinson's 2007 educational leadership article titled Teaching as Jazz says, quote, For learning to happen, the student must respond with a personal commentary or connection. Teaching requires two-way communication. To instruct well is to be keenly aware of the context and to develop a range of options to give each student in a given moment. So what does that look like in an actual classroom? Well, I'm going to use my U.S. government class as an example. If they need to create arguments that allow for political commentary on different themes in the U.S. government, the evidence that they work with to create those arguments can be differentiated. For instance, if I know a student has a high readiness level for this content and has a high interest level for it, I can push them towards professional journal articles. However, if I have students who are ESL students, 
I can provide them resources through Newzilla. Now in both cases, students are demonstrating mastery of those standards, but the resources that they're interacting with are different. Now again, I'm not an expert on differentiation, but when I do create a unit, I try to think of a couple of questions. First, do all of my students feel valuable in my classroom? Do they feel like they are an essential part of the learning environment? Second, do I have high quality curriculum that is relevant to my students? Third, have I created formative assessments that will provide students important feedback on their success on summative assessments? Fourth, what instructional arrangements should I use throughout the unit? When do I need to use whole group instruction, small group instruction, and individualized instruction? And lastly, does the summative assessment in my unit of instruction provide choice for different student readiness levels, interest levels, and learning profiles? In a classroom that thinks about these things, textbooks are not required reading. I tried to reflect on the best person to bring in to have a conversation about differentiation. And the issue was that differentiation is different class to class, grade to grade, and student to student. With that in mind, the conversation today is with Tiff Malali. Tiff is the technology coordinator at Wilkes University and is a self-proclaimed nerd. I was impressed by just the amount of resources available to students for differentiation. And now, Tiff Malali. Tiff Malali, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. First question before we get into our conversation on how we can use technology to differentiate learning. Why did you become a teacher? What got you into this field? Um, originally, it wasn't even close to the path that I was on. Um, well, I mean, I guess if you go back to when I was like two years old and teaching lessons to my, my dolls, I was a teacher. But um, after that, I was actually uh, going to be a physiologist. I was getting my master's in physiology and um, really interested in biomechanics and all of that sort of thing. And I had a conversation with uh, my professor in the program at one point, and I was just looking for direction on where can I go with this and what can I do. And she, she sat me down. She's like, if I could be honest with you, you are too much of a free spirit to be in one specific category and she <laughs> sort of uh, pointed me into being a teacher and she's like I, I think that this might be where you should be and I, I was never great at talking in front of people I, I go off on tangents and my mind starts you know going too fast from my mouth and it's it's embarrassing but she said that's okay it's it's part of <laughs> what people might actually enjoy about me teaching so you know, that sort of opened my eyes up to like, okay, this, this can be a thing. And I, uh, I had my first class, um, and I was, I was terrified. I was, um, teaching wellness at a, a local university and, you know, the first five minutes are terrifying. I had, um, some major sweating going on and awkwardness, but then after that, it just felt like, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that, that relates a lot to my experience as well, my first time standing up front and teaching a class, and those first five minutes are absolutely terrifying, but once you're through it and you just get this euphoric sense of, yes, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I, I, I remember, like, I would leave classrooms, and I would feel, like, this rush that you get, like, um, I do a lot of, like, I'm a, I'm a soccer player, and I do triathlons, and 
honestly, the rush was very similar to after like a, a great game or a great race, and like that's weird for me. That's <laughs> sort of like woo when you get done. So, what got you interested specifically in the technology side of education? Um, well, I've always been a, a super nerdy, dorky person. I had this thing when I was little. Um, it was called Pre Computer Two Thousand that I would carry with me all over the place. Like <laughs> I was. I remember six years old, and I would carry this computer with me everywhere. And, um, like, I just love the idea of technology, and I would use it to practice math and practice writing skills and even doing, you know, mediocre coding at the beginning. And then, you know, as I got into education more, and I was teaching kinesiology, which is a super hard subject. If you're not interested in it, then it's it's brutal so I was trying to incorporate ways for these students that that it, it's just memorization so how can I make this better for them how can I make it easier for them where they're just not coming to class and getting a PowerPoint presentation and me pointing to the skeleton over there and saying memorize this so I, I started to look for different tools for them to do it because I'm a certain kind of learner I like to rewrite all my notes I'm a, I'm a visual learner I'm a doer and by doing that that's how I, I learn things but um, my brothers are completely different and they were sort of seen as not intelligent going through school they weren't quote-unquote successful students but I, I don't think it's a, a lack of intelligence I actually think that they're more intelligent than I am it's just that the learning style that was offered at, their, at this time, this was like, you know, the 80s and 90s, it was read a book and you regurgitate what you read. And that doesn't work for everyone. So exactly. I think that knowing how my brothers learned versus how I learned and uh, in this kinesiology class, just seeing that there should be other options. And education technology give these other options. It allows the, the visual learner to have a chance in the classroom with a visual or um, an audio learner or someone that's really good at memorization or repetitive tasks. And it just opens up this whole world where, you know, students might have been written off at one point as, you know, let's not invest in them because they're not invested in us. Well, they might be invested, just not in that mode of teaching. So that's why I think education technology it really got me interested in how can we reach out to these other students. Now you've touched on this a little bit in what you just said, but what is the overall benefit of using this technology to differentiate instruction in a class? I said earlier on my podcast that differentiation was something in my first five, six years of teaching that I only really knew what the definition of the term was, but not the application process. So how can technology What's the benefit of using it to differentiate? I, I think that it gives the students a little bit more autonomy in the learning process. They can put it in their own hands instead of just teacher this lecture in front of the class. And, you know, the student has to do what the, the teacher says. Now they can take it in their own hands. You know, even if the, the teacher, the instructor isn't giving, you know, the, the different technologies for them to learn, they can go out and they can find them. So if you're a visual learner, there's an app out there for you. There's a tool out there for you that can help you learn the content. If you learn by repetition, there's definitely a tool out there for you. You know, math problems, you could find an app that'll give you 900 math problems that you can just keep doing until you get it. At, at this point, there's really a technology that applies to all learners, even those that have learning disabilities or, um, like the, the work that Steve Jobs, he originally, you know, looked at the iPad as a tool for autism. And, and knowing that there's these tools out there, like an autistic student can, you know, be able to use these tools to better learn. I, I think that's just a world of differentiation there. 
So really the, the overall benefit is the amount of resources that teachers can employ in order to differentiate for interest level or ability or learning profile so that students can learn or, or have multiple options to demonstrate the learning process. Right, right. And I think a big key to that, though, is to make sure that as educators, we're not just throwing this media or this technology at students, that it has to be useful, not not a distraction, but rather enhances the lesson. Because a lot of times people be like, oh, this is a fun game, but it could just be a distraction to the students. So I, I think we have a job to not just um, find the best tools, but the ones that will guide the instruction rather than take away from it. I love your point about using technology to guide the instructional process. It's not just a fun activity. I think so many times what teachers also do is they just think technology is the instant answer for everything. That instead of a blackboard, I'll have a smart board, and that's just going to have a huge effect on students' learning. Well, not if you're doing the same things you did with that blackboard on the smart board. So really it's the idea of doing new things in new ways. Right. So in that sense, let's talk about some of these technological tools we can use to differentiate, differentiate a classroom. Uh, one of the look-fors of differentiation is the idea of creating an inviting classroom atmosphere that lets students feel empowered. So what are some technological tools that I can use as a teacher to do that? I think one of the strongest advancements that we've had in education um, over the past couple years is just this understanding that it shouldn't just be like this, this one know-it-all in front of the class saying, spewing this information at the students and I think that students need to feel invested in the class and they they need to feel like they're a worthy contributor to the class rather than just someone you know taking in the information so I think that any tool that um, gives the student this this feeling that they are also contributing is is hugely empowering so anytime that you have let's say you have the Apple TV that's you know hooked up to any regular TV so I'm an instructor and I'm going through and on the class and I'm having them put together these projects to share with the class information that they found. I, I love the idea that they can have, let's say, an iPad or their computer in front of them and then when it's their turn to be the leader in the class, their information can go up on that screen and now they're the ones that are leading the instruction and now they're invested in the class and it's not just they're sitting back there and taking in this information but what they've learned the knowledge that they have they can share with the class I always told my classes you know when I was teaching that I'm as the just sitting up in front of the class I'm learning as much from the students as they're learning from me and I think that's important and I, I think it's important to give the students that ability and you know these projection tools definitely give that that's fantastic I didn't even know you could do that with an Apple TV Oh, yes, it's amazing. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about technology to help differentiate, to create a high-quality, authentic curriculum. That's another look for differentiation, having high-quality, authentic curriculum. So I'm going to give you four different particular subject areas, and I'd like to know what resources I could use as a teacher if I was in this particular class. So first situation, what resource would be useful to create high quality, authentic learning in a geometry class? All right, geometry is, is tough. Um, I feel math in general is tough because, and maybe this is just my opinion, I, I feel like there's, there's people that get math and then there's people that, that struggle with math. And uh, sometimes it's tough for people that really get it to really talk someone that doesn't get it through without repetition. 
And that's what, um, there's a lot of, you know, simple math apps out there, like Geometry Solver is one of them. And it focuses on repetition to really get a grasp on geometry. But I feel like sometimes there's, you know, students that no matter how much they are forced to do this repetitive geometry work, they're still not going to get it. I, I talked about my brother earlier, and he was someone that just didn't get math. He, he repeated the math class, I think, two or three years in a row, and it just didn't make a difference. You know, it didn't matter how much they were hammering this information in. He just wasn't getting it. So I think that, you know, we have to step away from that with these. I mean, these apps are great if it's someone that just wants to better their ability, but someone that's really just not getting it. Um, I actually think coding is an amazing a step in the right direction with this. Um, coding can be used for all the different subjects, but it really allows for problem solving and comprehension within a, a math setting. There's these robots out there. Um, they're called Dot and Dash, and they're from the Wonder Workshop. We picked a couple up at uh, Wilkes two or three years ago, and I've seen them at a lot of different conferences, and people are using them in amazing ways. There's these little blue adorable ball robots, and you could dress them up or, or whatever, but you use them with code. So the code that the student develops will cause the robot to walk or talk or even dance, and there's this great lesson that I saw aimed at um, third to fifth graders, and it's using the, the dat, and, dat and dash robots, and it, it programs these ability uh, through the coding to identify, classify, describe, and find different perimeters of quadrilaterals. So while they're working on this coding and they might not, might not be stressing like, oh, the geometry, the geometry, the geometry, they're doing this coding, and through doing that by breaking apart the geometry and going at it in steps, it allows them to better understand the, the principles of geometry. So by the end of the lesson, they're like, holy cow, now I, now I get it, what a quadrilateral is, and I understand the perimeter of it and different tools like that will help. There's, a, there's another thing called a sphere, which is really just, I mean, it's a sphere, and it's a, another great robotic tool, and it's paired with a, a tickle block code app. So with this activity, the, the student will move the sphere ball across a grid system. And through this grid system, they're going to describe using different math terms, the different movements and the location by coding the sequence. Now, it, this starts off like, like they're using this for geometry for, you know, second graders already at the second grade level, which is amazing. That is amazing. Um, yeah. So I, I've seen it used in so many different ways like that. But, you know, if you don't have tools like the, the robots, just in a basic app applications um, that you can find on your computer or a tablet. They have like these building lessons where they can teach the same thing with moving or um, doing different spheres or shapes and sort of anticipating what the geometric shapes will be or how they'll react. I feel like those are super great tools. So what coding does is it allows students to break down the particular skills that you would have to use in a more advanced math class, things like problem solving, high order thinking, and it also allows them to get conceptual understanding of some of these math um, concepts and systems, correct? Right, right. So at the end of the day, they're like, holy cow, I just did geometry. It was like a sort of magician trick, like, look over here, and then something else is going on in the other hand, and all of a sudden, <laughs> like, wow! <laughs> you no, suddenly get it. Is. That's amazing. Interesting. So let's switch gears a little bit. What about a biology classroom? If I want some high-quality, authentic curriculum, what resources could I use in a biology class? Um, biology is good. There's there's a lot of tools out there that everything from you know ecosystems to the human body stuff. There's this uh, great game on the Science Channel. 
It's called Who Wants to Mil- Win- Live a Million Years? Uh, it's all about Charles Darwin's Game of Survival. This was actually brought up, a student had demonstrated this in the class last semester, and I admit that I got stuck playing it for probably about an hour myself. <laughs> You're just trying to create, like, they have these, these little creatures, and you just have to pick which three creatures you want uh, based they I mean, they're, they're not real creatures, but, like, ones have longer necks and one has fur. And which ones do you think are going to survive the longest? And just based on these different things, and then it time lapse, and did you survive or didn't you to survive? And then it tells you why didn't you survive. Like, maybe your legs weren't long enough to outrun the creature or whatever. And it's just really interesting like that. Also, I'm a huge fan of Brain Pop game-ups. Uh, a lot of the Brain Pop stuff is... You have to pay for it, but the, the game-ups are mostly free. And I had a chance to talk to some of the developers at a, the ISTE conference and just the thought that they put into it and each aspect of the game. So they have this game on blood typing. Well, they have it on blood typing, digestive system, antibiotic resistance. Like, we're talking every grade level. Oh, my it's, gosh, really? Yeah. Wow. And they're free. And, again, you could just spend hours. Like, I, I could spend hours on these games, and I just found them to be fun and informative and again it's like this bait and switch like here i am playing these games and at the end hey i I could tell you all about what your blood type means and (laughs) things like that wow that's amazing that 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 really goes a long way from the old model of a cell that i used to have to look at in biology class exactly okay so let's switch it up again what about high quality authentic curriculum in a world history classroom what resources could i use there um Again, world history is tough because it's a, another one of these subjects where it's almost like, um, here's the information and learn it. Here's the information and learn it. I did see that Brain Pop also had another game. It's called Mission US. And you have to work through, I think it's like six or seven different series where they talk about everything from immigration to slavery and Native Americans. So that would be um, you know, US history. Timeline is also a really nice tool that I've actually used in uh, some of my presentations, and it gives you this ability to create an entire timeline and put different plots on this timeline. It's interactive, and you can put media in it to show videos or photos. So if you're going to go through, you know, World War II or or something like that, you could just put different key points as the timeline moves across, and it'll show these different things. So I think that would be a great way, like have the students build this timeline, see how each student is different, what key points did they find that another student didn't. And then back to the coding thing. There's this great coding lesson that I came across from, uh, it's about Grace Hopper, who was a woman who worked for the Navy during World War II. And she was actually credited with finding the first computer bug. So there's this, stu- this lesson where the, the students will watch this informative video. It's all through uh, Google Classroom and Google Sheets. And they'll watch the video on her and learn about it, but then they get to go in and find their own bugs. So there's oh, like wow. a, a whole bunch of different scratch documents that they have, and they can do it as a team or on their own, and they have to find the bugs in this this programming. So, I, I mean, I would have loved something like that in school. That would have been amazing. Yeah, and as a history teacher myself, I feel, I feel like some of the best technology resources in history are just the amount of databases where I can find primary sources now. It's very easy for me to pull tons of documents on the historical era that students can actually investigate and interact with. So even though it might not be necessarily a game, just the plethora of resources that I can draw from the internet, or I can even work with other schools and do things through Skype or Twitter, trying to open up that bubble. Right. 
So last one. What about high quality, authentic curriculum in a middle school English classroom? I think that TED Ed is probably one of my favorite tools for this. I mean, TED Ed, I, again, it's another tool that I could just get lost in all day. So TED Ed is uh, the education version of TED, and it offers the video with quizzes and ways to discuss the topic and to dig deeper with them if you want to learn more about that specific topic. But there's like great lessons exploring things like Shakespeare or other literature writing, so it allows them to, to watch the video and understand things, but ask them questions to get a little bit more into it instead of just you know saying, this is what I thought of Shakespeare. In terms of writing... There's this tool that, I think it was my nephew that was doing it in one of his kindergarten, first grade classes. It's called Boom Writer. And it allows students to write a book together. So, like, you'll contribute a paragraph, and then it's passed on to me. And I have to write the next paragraph. And it's either done as a, a creative writing or, like, a textbook. And it teaches students to sort of adapt their, their thought process, their creativity, to match you know, the tone that's already set, but there's there's vocabulary tools that are in it, and at, at the end, I, I just think this would be great, at the end of this writing, the teacher can get the book published for $10. So how cool would that be as a teacher to have these books that your students wrote over the past however many years you've been a teacher, to, to look back and even share with them, you know, it would be fun for, you know, Tommy, who's now graduating high school, to go back and say, holy cow, I I wrote this crazy story about a lizard that with my classmates and and that's a great idea and it's a it's a fantastic authentic experience for students even in kindergarten collaborating right. with each other to write a story and they actually get some sort of product at the end of it that's a, that's fantastic right i know so what about record keeping of students' growth over time in terms of differentiation something that's important for me as a teacher is to make to first pre-assess where students are in terms of their interest, ability level, learning profile, and their conceptual understanding of a, of a subject. And then my goal is to identify their weaknesses and help them grow in those skills. So what kind of technology would you suggest to assist me in keeping records of student growth over time? I've seen Socrative, uh, or Socrative, however you want to pronounce it, has been a pretty good tool at you know, entry tickets, exit tickets, and sort of identifying student weaknesses. It's like a, a quizzing app, but it makes it fun. There's this thing called a space race in it where students can compete against, you know, their classmates to see who can answer the questions the quickest. And you can actually see, like, your little rocket going across the screen. And I, I sort of think of it like those little water gun balloon things at uh, a fair. Oh, yeah. I think something like that is, is pretty interesting, and you can sort of keep track of how the student's done and how the student's progressed as, as time has gone up. Also, in terms of uh, student growth over time, there's this uh, avatar role-playing games. Yes, uh, there's ClassCraft, and uh, it integrates within a Google Classroom, or you can do it on your own, and it allows students to, to build this character. So you start off as a sage, I guess, and then you progress all the way to like a wizard based on how you've completed certain tasks within the classroom. So you get awarded certain points, and it could be based on like if a teacher just wants to have the students behave better and is paying attention to that level. You know, you could set different points if Sally helped clear the chalkboard. I don't know if kids do that in the classroom. But yeah, like uh, it could give them points based on how well they do things like that, or 
you know, how many times you've handed in your homework on time or have you been helpful with your, your classmates? So there's like so many ways, but class craft is definitely a way and the students take interest in it because they want to, they want to be a bigger, stronger character. And uh, I mean, the characters are really impressive looking too. It's not like a, a stick figure from Lois and Clark and the 1984 computers. Tons of students play what Minecraft. That idea of growth and progression, when you put that work in, is something students already are familiar with. And as a huge fan of the early Final Fantasy video games, I would have loved to have had that at school. Right, right. So what about keeping students accountable in small groups or doing individual-based projects? When we have to differentiate a classroom, I have to be mindful of the groupings that I'm going to do for students based on the tasks that I have. Sometimes it's going to be whole group instruction or small group instruction or individually based. But how can I keep students accountable for the goals that they're all working on? Because they may be working on completely different things. Uh, again, Classcraft is, is going to have to be my, my go-to on this one. It, I've heard great reviews about it's actually getting students to work together. Uh, you know, a lot of the reviews are saying, I, I can't believe how my students are not just invested in their own success, but invested in their classmates' success. And, you know, more students are asking for help trying to get, you know, because they know that not only is my avatar super powerful, but the more powerful all of ours are, that sort of benefits me too. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Again, the, the whole class crap thing is... It's pretty big right now. Seesaw is this interesting tool that it sort of stores uh, digital documents or like a portfolio of a student. So they can go back and see the work that they've done and, and how they've progressed. And uh, so on an individual project, this is what I've contributed. Or even a group project. And uh, the neat thing about that one is parents have access to it too. So they can sort of see what the their kid is working on and uh, for the paid version, I think they can even get assessed right on that. So they, the, the parents will be able to see, you know, is, is Johnny doing what he's supposed to in the classroom? You know, that reminds me a little bit of a, a system that I do with students individually. I actually have just a normal Google document that has a table with individual goals for things that we're working on. If they've achieved those goals, a reflection of their learning process and what might need to be altered based on what they're doing that day and individual feedback that I would have given towards students on their objectives and it keeps that record of their growth every day and it does get shared with parents so that they can see particularly the goals that students have made for themselves and how they're learning and growing throughout that process. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so we're going to end our, our podcast with a little bit of a game. I'm going to tell you a few traditional performance tasks things that we probably did in the 90s and 80s, things that, unfortunately, I still hear students do. Let's turn these old performance tasks into 21st century differentiated learning products. Ready? Ready. Okay. First one, a poster presentation. How can we take a poster presentation and turn that into a 21st century learning product? Well, I mean, I'm a big fan of the cardboard trifold, but... Um... <laughs> so many more tools now that are just great. Um, Glogster is just this amazing poster tool. So you, you get to overlay all these different media tools to make a digital poster that's engaging. It's almost like you make a, uh, a collage. So let's say you have a topic like Ford Motor Company. I don't know why I picked that, but Ford Motor Company. Let's go with that. And you can put all these 
different videos or photos or, or whatever over this big media thing. And when people mouse over, it, it shares all these different aspects of it. PictoChart is a, a really great tool. I, I use that probably once a week. Um, it creates these infographics. So it's it'll make this static uh, sort of media that I love infographics. It just flows from one concept into the next concept, and I find them to be engaging and uh, a lot better than, than your average poster. And ThinkLink, that is just a great tool where you could overlay this picture with all these hot buttons. And it could be, let's say you want your class to explore Athens. So you would have this panoramic photo of Athens, and over it would be these hotspot buttons where when they click on it as they're they're moving through the the photo it's sharing this information it could be videos it could be text it could be images it could be social media links anything like that and i I find that just so informative if you want to learn the culture of a place i mean i can't think of a better way okay performance task number two transform the traditional essay into a 21st century learning product. Okay, so an essay. So if we're looking at it from pre-essay, like while we're writing the essay, um, prompts is a pretty neat tool. It's an app, and as you're you're writing, you know, the more that you continue to write, there's algorithms that decide what the the best time of the day is that you're writing. Like when are you the most productive during the day? And also, while you're writing, it'll give you prompts about what to write next or what to think about. It, it's a really smart, intuitive app. If we're looking at it you know, from the point of after the essay has been written and how can we share this information, I like the iBooks author. You can write like this, you know, a little storybook based on your essay and put in videos or photos and it can be interactive and you know, flip through just like a regular book on your, your iPad or computer. Or to add the, the audio dimension to it, any moto is pretty cool. So you could you can create this story via photos, images, drawings, whatever you'd like, and then act as the narrator with your essay read over it. I, I think that that would be a pretty interesting way to do it. All right, now I've got one more performance task for you, and this actually comes from my students. I was telling them about this conversation we were going to have, and I said, what are some traditional projects that you guys used to do in elementary school that you want me to ask? And they said, oh, the PowerPoint presentation. So how can we take a PowerPoint presentation and make it into a 21st century learning product? Yes, this is this is a great question. I, when I do... Um, my presentations now and, you know, any of my research and stuff, I use this tool called, uh, I talked about earlier, PictoChart, and I reference the infographic part of it, but there's also a slide part of it. And it is definitely more engaging than your regular PowerPoint. I, I know when I first brought it out in the class, the, the students are like, oh, yeah, you work in technology. It's, it's evident because everyone else is up there with these boring uh, static PowerPoints, but PictoChart, it's really easy to use, and it gives a lot more life to the whatever you're trying to get across. But if it's um, it's a lighter area, you know, not, you know, life or death research, Powtoon is this great tool where you create these cartoons that move across, and it, it's just really interesting and fun, and I, I find that people don't get nearly as bored when uh, 
watching a little character dance across the screen, bringing some text across with it. You know, for for me, some of the resources that you've known throughout this conversation are things that I've recognized and I've tried to implement, things like Powtoon and Animoto. So it's been really uh, reassuring when you're suggesting these resources, saying, oh yeah, I've actually used that. But you've definitely listed a lot off that I'm not familiar with, and I probably need to take some time and navigate through some of these things and how I can use them in the classroom. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Tiff, and I hope I can have you on again. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions about differentiation, if you would like to share your stories with differentiation, or if you have any topics that you'd like to be covered in a subsequent podcast, let me know on our Twitter hashtag at hashtag realpracticalteaching.